We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Well, we welcome you tonight to our evening service. It's a good opportunity for us to be together yet again. If you think about uh, circumstances being different, it could easily be that God would ordain that we could not meet COVID, with uh, war, with illness, Um, you know, there are a lot of different situations that God could have permitted to be our portion this evening, but he allowed us to be here to worship. Let's turn our Bibles for our Bible reading tonight to 2 Chronicles chapter 4. The young people have already made their quick escape, so they're up to their program, 2 Chronicles chapter 4. You may recall in our reading that Solomon was preparing to build the temple and he's building, has built it. Chapter 3 records that and then we come to chapter 4. Moreover, it says, he made a bronze altar. 20 cubits was its length, 20 cubits its width, and 10 cubits its height. Then he made the sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. I'll let all you mathematicians out there puzzle through the math on that and uh, consider the possibilities of uh, how that is described to us. And under it was the likeness of oxen, encircling it all around, ten to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward. It was a hand breadth thick. Factor that in, by the way, to your mathematical calculation. And its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 3,000 baths. He also made ten lavers and put five on the right side and five on the left to wash in them. Such uh, things as they offered for the burnt offering, they would wash in them. But the sea was for the priests to wash in. And he made ten lampstands of gold according to their design and set them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. He also made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. And he made one hundred bowls of gold. Furthermore, he made the court of the priests and the great court and doors for the court, and he overlaid these doors with bronze. He set the sea on the right side toward the southeast. Then Hurim made the pots and the shovels and the bowls. So Hurim finished doing the work which he was to do for King Solomon for the house of God, the two pillars, the bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals which were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on the pillars. He also made carts and the lavers on the carts, one sea and 12 oxen under it, 
also the pots, the shovels, the forks, and all their articles. Huram, his master craftsman, made of burnished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Sukkot and Zeradah. And Solomon had all these articles made in such great abundance that the weight of the bronze was not determined. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of God, the altar of gold and the tables on which was the showbread, the lampstands with their lamps of pure gold to burn in the prescribed manner in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, of purest gold, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold. As for the entry of the sanctuary, its inner doors to the most holy place and the doors of the main hall of the temple were gold. I would be very interested to just be a fly on the wall watching those things be produced, all the casting work in the clay that was done, all the overlaying, all of the fine craftsmanship that was being done there. That is a tremendous accounting of what was done, and I'm sure that the end result was extraordinarily beautiful, wasn't it? Yeah, so that is quite something. That's Second Chronicles chapter 4. We will pick up next time when we get uh, back here again. Well, I have some options before me for messages here. Did anybody have any questions about uh, like the Sunday school this morning or anything else before I begin? Boy, I'm getting swamped. I saw Carolyn first, so go ahead, Carolyn. Yeah, uh, from the, the ones, the question is about the punishments that were given, uh, that are talked about in Ezekiel in that segment that we're reading now around 28, 25, 6, 7, 8, 9. Most of those are all historical to us now, uh, all, all worked out. So uh, like the one this morning, if you recall, Nebuchadnezzar had labored over Tyre and he wasn't able to completely uh, capture it. Um, and uh, so God said, I'll give you, uh, you know, Egypt for your wages and uh, I don't know the years of all those off the top of my head. I have to go back to my Old Testament uh, uh, history class to uh, get all that data for you. But uh, generally, those are historical. Yes? Yes, there is, there is future material in uh, Ezekiel. Uh, I don't have, again, I don't have my outline in front of me for that, but in uh, 30... Uh, 6, 37, we have the promises of like the dry bones living and the two sticks being put together, the, the nation being joined again, one kingdom and one king in chapter 37. We have this what seems to be future attack against Israel uh, during the tribulation, probably chapter 38 and 39, Gog and Magog. Those are somewhat mysterious to most of us as we read the text of Scripture and then starting in 40 through 48 is all future with regard to the new temple or what we call the millennial temple. So yeah, there are, many, there are several segments of the book of Ezekiel, some with prophecies near term, which now to us have been fulfilled, and some prophecies far term, which yet have to be fulfilled. Yeah, so, and I can uh, provide my outline. It's on our website as well if you want to look at that. I think it gives a little bit of an idea of that. Um, you know, fulfillment times. So, okay, that's a good question.
Yeah, it's all, and actually that question gives me the opportunity to remind you some of these kinds of things are very helpful for us to have in mind when we're reading. That's why I produced my book of Bible outlines uh, because if you can have the outline on, you know, on one side and you're reading on the other, you can kind of follow along, okay, where am I in this forest of you know, prophecies and a little bit about the timeline and some of the key things about the book so it can help you understand it a lot better kind of put it into a real-life picture. Okay, yes. Becky is looking at the, um, the similar beliefs held by Muslims and Christians that we looked at this morning and saying, hey, wait a minute, some of these beliefs have important implications, very important implications, and that they do, but uh, those are not observed by our Muslim friends. You know, in their mind, they can have a sinless prophet born of a virgin, and it's just simply a miracle. It's just a miracle. It doesn't speak any further to his person or his work. It's a good comment. I see Naomi there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, am I correct about that? He, they say that he was not perfect, right? Yeah, that's exactly correct. In our conversations, the point uh, is, so the question was, are there any other prophets who are similarly situated as Jesus in terms of their sinlessness? And the answer that as far as we have um, uh, extracted is no, They're, the other prophets uh, are, are all sinners, but none are guilty of major sins. None are guilty of major sins, they say. So uh, I don't have that in my notes here, but one major objection to that is obviously King David, who the book of Acts says prophesied, uh, we would have to agree that he was guilty of multiple major sins, but that is denied by our Muslim friends. Again, on the basis that the scriptures are what, in their view, corrupted in their view. I saw uh, Darius next. Oh, okay. Yeah, very good. Yes, Carolyn. I don't know the answer to what are major sins. Um, and I mean, I, I, obviously like murder and that sort of thing would be major, but what exactly is their um, criteria for that? I don't know. Do you remember if they gave a criteria? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so they, they, like I say, there would be ones that they would agree upon are major. And, of course, the worst would be like idolatry. Is that how they say it? Or just polytheism? Yeah, any, any kind of diversion away from Allah as the only God and Muhammad as his prophet would be considered like the most major sin that could be done. So it's a... It's a conundrum for somebody who's considering their system of belief if they're a Christian because that, they say that their beliefs are somewhat similar to Christians, yet the very profession of Christ as God is, would be a, considered a major, you know, like mortal sin on their, from their viewpoint. Yes, sir. 
Uh, yeah, so the question has to do with what about people who don't believe, and that depends on the sect of Islam that you're talking about. A very peaceful sect like the Ahmadi Muslims would say, no, there is no call for violence. Other, uh, others would not be so friendly. So infidels would be dispatched, if you know what I mean. Um, and of course, that somewhat depends on where you are in the world, the belief system. To me, at least, I'm just speaking my own, for what I'm obser observing, it seems to be moderated in the West many times so that it's not that violent, whereas in, other, in, in Middle Eastern countries, it may well be full-on, uh, you know, infidel punishment for unbelief, uh, depending on, you know, the circumstances, the country, the, the law, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Anybody have anybody else? That's generating some interest, I can tell. Uh, it has been of interest to us. Um, and and uh, I, I didn't put this in here either, but maybe to answer your question, Kevin, a little bit more. Uh, the old way that it was presented, the, the pillars of Islam were presented, it included jihad or holy war. I'm talking about 30 or more years ago when I was in school. Now they talk about jihad being struggle. And struggle, it's almost, it, it almost reads like it's sanctification. It's a struggle for holiness. Inner, in, inner, in, inside your person struggle, not a holy war kind of thing. So... To me, that seems like a liberalization of Islam. Uh, something like, you know, happens in liberal Christianity. I think there's liberalizing tendencies both in, in, all, in all religious systems um, to move away from what we might call fundamentalist belief. So like for us, you know, we believe in the substitutionary atonement for the penalty of sin. Well, that's a bloody business because Christ died and shed his blood. But liberal Christians, so to speak, don't like that. So they soften that down and they make the atonement be an example uh, of the you know, anger of God against sin or the self-giving, the self-sacrificing nature of Christ and that sort of thing. But it's not a penalty substitution model of the atonement. And I believe that there are similar things going on in other, you know, other faith systems, like in Islam. So... To me, I, I'm not sure exactly, you know, the whole genesis of that, you know, change. To me, what's a change because how it was presented to me years ago, that jihad was holy war. So, uh, is that how you were taught? Yeah, lots of people have been taught that over the years. But I'm just giving. You know, maybe this is useful for you, so you know that jihad is different now to some than it was to those of us who uh, were, you know, had learned it before. Well, let me carry on with that subject. I had um, gotten to um, this statement in Islam. The statement is very boldly made that it was unnecessary that Jesus Christ die. And uh, that was a very troublesome statement to me. I thought about that for a while. And the idea, as I've already alluded to, is that God can forgive sins solely as he pleases based on his mercy. The substitution, well, so back up again. He just says whose, whose sins are forgiven and whose aren't. 
and you really don't know until you face him. What then do we do with the fact that Jesus did die or apparently died? So there are two theories that Muslims use in order to explain that. There may be others, but two main ones that I'm aware of. One is the substitution theory, which is, don't be confused, it's not substitutionary atonement. The substitution theory is that someone substituted for Jesus on the cross. Somebody that looked like Jesus or Judas or anybody else, some one of his followers. The second uh, approach is what is called the swoon theory. That is that Jesus was on the cross and he like passed out. They took him down and he revived later. And of course, we deal with the swoon theory fairly often around Easter time when we're dealing with, you know, those theories, false theories of uh, the crucifixion in, in the Christian general area of Christian faith. Um, but here it's the swoon theory in the Islamic tradition. Uh, but we've never really dealt with the substitution um, theory. Uh, maybe I should sometime, but the reality is you have so many eyewitnesses to the death of Christ on the cross. You have his mother there. You have his close disciples, John there, all of his disciples there. You have the chief priests, uh, the scribes, the crowds, the Pontius Pilate. It's, it is so unreasonable to think that there's a misidentification or that somehow there was a miraculous substitution made at the last minute or, or something like that. I mean, that's what we call an unreasonable doubt cast upon the atonement. If you're a juror, right, you're told to, uh, a standard of, of evidence is a reasonable doubt standard, right? You don't think, well, I mean, all the evidence points to this man, but maybe the man on the moon did it, you know, and you have an unreasonable doubt as to what uh, could have occurred. Uh, not so. So, those are the two theories to deal with the, um, the appearance that Jesus died uh, in their view. But the fact is, in Christianity, it was necessary that Christ die and rise again, and not just from one or two texts. Let me share a few with you. I have a half a dozen here or more, uh, several from Luke's gospel, Luke 9.22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and be raised the third day. Luke 24, 26, remember he's talking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Necessary. Verse 46 of Luke 24, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Now, by the way, why is he in Luke 24, what's Jesus, what is Jesus pointing to that make it necessary for him to suffer and die and rise again from the dead? What is the underlying principle or truth that he points to? Do you remember? Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. It was necessary that Jesus die because the prophets predicted. Now, it was necessary for other reasons too. He had to die in order to make atonement for our sins, but the fact that it was prophesied in the Old Testament means that it had to be fulfilled. 
It had to be fulfilled. Every little detail had to be fulfilled of the Old Testament prophecy. It was a must, a must-necessarily-be kind of thing. Um, Luke 24, 7, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. By the way, to your point, Becky, if Jesus was sinless and he said these sorts of things, then he was telling the truth, yes? Now, of course, again, somebody would say, well, these texts have been corrupted. You know, we can't trust them. Where's the evidence, again, is your response. Give me the evidence before you make such an outlandish claim. Acts 17.3, Paul is in Thessalonica, and it says that he is explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So necessary in his identification of Christ in the Old Testament with this Jesus in the New Testament is these things were predicted. He did these things. Thus, these two are equal. That's what he's arguing there. First uh, Peter 1.11, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Those were prophesied by the, the Old Testament. And Hebrews 9.22, why is it necessary? Well, for Christ to die without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So there had to be that. And again, these are not isolated texts. This is like a major theme throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Okay, so Christ did indeed have to die. There is no option, no question about that. Um, here's another one that comes uh, uh, to uh, the front, and that is in Islam, Jesus, uh, they believe Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, and therefore he is a man. Christianity agrees that he is called the Son of Man. In fact, that's his favorite self-title, the Son of Man. But there's a big difference. When a, when a Muslim says that Jesus is the Son of Man, they, they actually mean something slightly different than that. They, they add an implicit word and change it slightly, making it some, mean something it does not. Let me try to help you with that. Here's what it means when they say that Jesus is a son of man, what they, or the son of man. What they mean is Jesus is a son of man only. They add that only in, in, their, in their understanding. And they say that he is a son of man. Notice that the word a is substituted for the word the. Jesus is the, or can I say it more properly, the son of man? <laughs> you know, the. How did we get that anyway? The, T-H-U. Is that how you spell it, Jack, in your spelling class? No, it doesn't work like that. The. <laughs> T-H-U-H. Okay, he corrected me. <laughs> you got to put the, U, the H at the end. The silent H, I guess. There is that thing. Yeah, right. The Son of Man, not a Son of Man. The biblical phrase is the Son of Man about 80 times in the Bible. Uh, Jesus is not just a, but the. He is a representative of humanity like who? Adam. Exactly right. He is not just any old man. He is the Son of Man. I mean, you look, think about like 
Psalm 8, for example, it says that, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you have, you know, and it talks about man being made lower than the angels and all this, crowned with glory and honor, but yet he's not because why? He failed. But there is one who has come who will perfectly fulfill that role for all of mankind as their representative. He is the Son of Man. So we don't make the Son of Man a Son of Man. In addition, in the mind of uh, Islamic tradition or theology, the word only is added to this phrase. You know, we, don't, we have no problem recognizing the humanity of Christ, that he is, you know, he is a Son of Man too. I mean, he is a, a human. But it is not only a son of man that we're talking about because he is God also. Okay? So we don't add the word only there. And there's, a, there's sort of a blockade in the mind of, of the Muslim or of other faith traditions which hold that Jesus cannot be God because they say, well, logically, God cannot be a man and a man cannot be God. except he can, because he did, because Jesus came and took on him the form of a servant coming in the likeness of men. That's what the text of Scripture says. So we may have a trouble understanding that. I know you do, and I do. You know, how exactly is it that infinite God can be, could I say it, bottled up into the form of a man? You know, how do you bottle deity? How do you make one who's, you know, the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool come in a package of five and, five and a half feet tall or six feet tall and, you know, just a person? It's amazing. Well, it's a miracle, isn't it? God is able to do that. Not impossible for him. Now, let me maybe broaden your scope a little bit on the phrase, the Son of Man. The theological significance of the Son of Man is not only that Jesus is a human. The theological significance of this has implications for his deity also. Daniel chapter 9. I just happen to be in Ezekiel since we were talking about it, so I'm I'm nearby here. Sorry, did I say Daniel 9, Daniel 7? Daniel 7, uh, verse 13 Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Right there, that tells you something special about this Son of Man. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. You know, does God share his glory with another? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So here's one coming to the Ancient of Days. He's given an eternal kingdom. He's shared the glory of God. This has implications for his deity. The Son of Man is a heavenly person who descends to the world to be king and judge. Did you ever think about that from this passage? Where did the Son of Man come from? (laughs) Up there. Well, let's look at another verse, if that doesn't convince you. Uh, Because you you might say, well, he came from down here, and he was invested with, you know, that title or something. Well, how about John uh, 3, verse 13? 
No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. You see that it says the Son of Man who is in heaven? He's the one who came down? That talks about a heavenly origin, doesn't it? So Jack, remember, the Son of Man is not just about his manhood. It's about his connection to deity. There's some other things, too. Um, The title of the Son of Man is one of exaltation, not just of humility. Remember Luke 6, 5? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, that sounds a little more elevated than just some mere man, right? The Son of Man, Luke 5 says, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Woo! That's the Son of Man we're talking about. And of course, the um, prerogative of forgiveness of sins belongs to whom? God. Yes, Luke 5.21. The Pharisees were correct when they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Ding, 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 you're correct. So who is this one that's before you forgiving sins? Think about that. All right, so Son of Man does not mean that he is a man only, but it's an exalted title that connects him to his deity as well. Uh, Okay, next on my list, uh, I'm on page six of the notes. If you're looking at them from online, it says in my notes here, Islam teaches that Allah has no son. That's like a mantra. You know what a mantra is? A slogan. They say it over and over and over. Allah has no son. What are they saying? Christianity's bad is what they're saying by that. That's, that's the positive version of the statement. Allah has no son is the positive, and, the, and what they mean is Christianity is, is ridiculous. In Christianity, however, Jesus said, I am the son of God. He didn't say I'm God. Remember, we looked at that this morning, but I'm the son of God. Matthew 27, 43 records those words as a mocking accusation of Jesus by the chief priests. Remember, uh, they accused him of blasphemy because he said, I am the Son of God. Um, John uh, 10, 36. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Well, there it is. He calls himself the Son of God. If he's a prophet and if he's sinless, maybe we should believe what he says. Now, obviously, the Pharisees understood this phrase, I am the Son of God, to mean more than just, you know, I'm a child of God by faith, just like every other child of God by faith. They understood Jesus to mean that he was claiming equality with deity. They didn't they knew he wasn't saying, I'm a son like Israel was a son. Remember in Exodus 4, uh, let my people go, Israel, my son, my firstborn. Uh, they understood this like a John 5.18 was a claim beyond some uh, kind of mild statement of sonship. Matthew 5.18, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because... He not only broke the Sabbath, but said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They were correct again. Jesus is equal with God. Um, Let me see. I think I'll skip this little part here in my notes. I'll I'll go on. 
Matthew uh, chapter 11 and verse number 27 is where I'll go next. Matthew 11 and verse 27. Listen to this. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Allah might have no Son, but God does have a Son. That's because Allah, we've labored to show our friends that Allah and God of the Bible are two different gods. They're not the same God. They have a title, God, but they are different gods. No question at all. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. All right, I have a couple uh, more points, I think. Um, The next one in Islam is that Jesus, they say, could not do miracles at certain times. He could not do miracles at certain times. In Christianity, Jesus did and could do miracles, but only in the will of the Father. Now, where do they get this idea from? Let's turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 and verse number 5. Jesus finds himself at Nazareth. He goes in the synagogue and teaches. The people are astonished. They uh, revile him. You know, isn't he just some carpenter, the son of Mary? Brothers and sisters, we know they were offended at him. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own house or in his own house. And it says in verse 5, Now, he could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there. And so the claim is made, well, look, it. the Bible says he could not do a mighty work. Therefore, he is not God because God can do miracles. Sounds good, except for a couple of key factors. Number one, the lack of miracles is because of the truth conveyed in verse number six. Look at six. It says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. The other version of this is found in Matthew 13. And it brings some clarity to this. I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. In Matthew 13, 58, the very last verse of the chapter, it says, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I have often used this passage to remind you, if you want God to do things in your life, you better believe him. Don't ask doubting because a man who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Instead, you believe in him. You, you ask with faith, with faith, trusting that he will carry out that which is best and in accordance with his will and your prayer request. Okay, so the lack of miracles is because the people were filled with unbelief. And that's what it says. They, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That sounds a whole lot different than he could not do a miracle, doesn't it? We've added a color to the situation, and we've read the more full context. Next, why is this not an accurate portrayal of the situation? Jesus was perfectly submitted to the will of the Father in heaven. In his human life, he always did that which pleased his Father. As such, he may well 
could not do miracles because God did not want him to at that particular time and place. And in the face of unbelief, that's no surprise, is it? But finally, look at Matthew 6, 5 again, or sorry, Mark 6, 5 again. And this is where uh, no miracle. He could not do miracles. So it's, see, it's focusing your attention on the word could. He's unable, they say. Therefore, he cannot be God. Except, what does Mark 6, 5 say? Now, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and could not heal them? No, it says he healed them. And so after that word accept is the key. He did do some miracles. He didn't do many because they were wicked. They they did not believe. And we could put like footnote after that accept, see all the other miracles that Jesus did in the New Testament. Cleansing lepers, healing demoniacs, raising the dead, making food for thousands of people out of virtually nothing, and you know, raising Lazarus, and so on and so forth and so on. Except there's a blockade to the work of God when there's unbelief, but there's no inability in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, for that purpose. So the lesson is this, do not let an uninformed person dictate your understanding of the verses of Scripture. Turn to the passage, read the whole thing in its context out loud before you make a conclusion. The text of Scripture there does not support at all the notion that Jesus could not do a miracle. It rather supports that he did do miracles and selectively in the face of belief or unbelief. I was just reviewing, watching a portrayal of a portion of the Lord's ministry with the centurion who came to him and asked, would you heal my servant? He's a dear servant to me, and uh, he seems like he's going to die, basically, was the idea, and uh, the Lord was going to come. I'll come. And the man said, don't come. I'm a man under authority. What I say goes. What you say goes. Just say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, he's healed. I haven't seen such faith in Israel, he said. That's faith. That's a practical expression of faith. I don't need the Lord to come. I don't need to see a visitation from on high. I don't need to. I just believe in him. Just believe in him. Blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen. Thomas, yes. Who, by the way, responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God, another evidence of the deity of Christ, which I haven't mentioned here. Other limitations of Jesus can be attributed to many factors. That is, uh, that he was a man. I don't know how I wrote this in my notes here. Oh, I see. Yeah, you you don't have to attribute the, 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 the limitations of Jesus to the fact that he was not deity. You can attribute them to other factors. For example, in Mark 5.30, someone would say, well, look, he didn't know who touched him in the crowd. And so he turned around and asked, who touched me? Power went out of him and someone was healed. He either knew and was just asking the who to come forward, or the Logos did not tell the human consciousness of the Lord who it was, and he found out using regular human means. 
This is the same explanation that we uh, use to explain um, the uh, timing of the second coming, for example. When the Lord says, no one knows not the angels, not even the Son, but only the Father in heaven, the divine Logos, the second person of the Trinity, who is united with the human nature in the single person of Christ, well knew. But he didn't flood all of that information over to the human consciousness of the Lord. How this miracle works, I don't fully understand. I'll just tell you. But he didn't flood that information over or transfer that information over to the, to the conscious awareness of Christ so that he could say, honestly, no one knows but the Father in heaven. That's Mark uh, 13 and 32. I might be just open my Bible to that and read it here. Yeah, it says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So you know, for the record, we've dealt with that passage here, and we're given a brief, at least, explanation of it. Another statement that the Lord makes under this heading of kind of limitations of the Lord or apparent limitations no one is good but one that is God. Remember that? The rich young ruler comes to him and says, Good teacher, why do you call me good? There's no one good, not, you know, only just one is good. Um, and, and he himself was that good, but it was not his time to manifest that. He was in his humiliation. Deity and its exalted status was not something that he grasped onto to hold. That's Philippians 2 5 to 11. He left that behind in his kenotic state or kenosis state, his human manifestation in the first coming. And then finally, I'll give you one more. It says in John 14, 28, my father is greater than I. So that's kind of a, that's like the checkmate of the Islamic theology. They'll say, see, look, Jesus said himself, my father is greater than I. How do we explain that uh, in, in our Christian faith? Well, in, indeed, in his humility, he was not just playing as a servant or pretending to be a servant. He was a servant of God and humanity. I always do those things that please the Father. Uh, my will is to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, you know, He submitted to the will of the Father. A father, not my will, but yours be done he said in the Garden of Gethsemane. He voluntarily submitted himself under the hand of the Father. And this is the explanation of this. His Father is in that exalted position. So the Christian can successfully answer Islamic objections to Christianity, including to the Bible, to the person and work of Christ. And and most often we do so through careful attention to the context and the details of a passage in the theology of the person of Christ. Um, so that really concludes the short message that I wanted to share on that, which turned out a little longer than I thought it would. But um, let me share with you just one. I found this resource very interesting online. Uh, I've given the um, address of it in some text in my notes on page 8. The article that I'm referring to here uh, is the Quran and the New Testament Bible, a comparison of textual histories. The article compares the Quranic and New Testament textual transmission and notes the advantages of what they call the uncontrolled transmission history of the Bible text. Now, when I use the word uncontrolled, that initially probably sounds to you like, oh, that's bad. 
what they're saying is not that it was out of the control of God, but that the transmission history of the Bible was uncontrolled from the perspective of man. Paul sends a letter to the church. He then has no control over how, how often it's copied and to where those copies are sent. And everybody makes copies of the copies they have, and they know their precious books, and they, like us, want to preserve the Word of God. I mean, we're sitting here working with Bibles International feverishly to get these Bibles to people and make sure that they're available on different platforms so that nobody can censor them out. And they had the same job, only it was even more important because they were the holders of the very first and early copies of the New Testament manuscripts and copies of those manuscripts. And so the uncontrolled transmission history just means it went out far and wide and God used that to preserve his word. The uh, Quran, or Quran, however you want to call it, Q-U-R-A-N or K-O-R-A-N are two spellings of it that are used, uh, that had a more controlled transmission history. Uh, There are few men who had a hand in the Quranic revision process It was first collected by a fellow named Zaid and then three other scholars and a fellow named Uthman. And you can ask Darius about this more. He's more up to date on all the details than I am. But uh, they could have, the the text indicates, because the, the transmission history went through them. They were the control points. They easily could have modified the text and, uh, and, and we know they dropped certain things and put in certain things to the text prior to, and we'll never know, because the history was burned before that point, so they got rid of it. Prior to Zaid, many who had memorized portions of the Quran were killed after Muhammad's death, and some of the men who were experts in the Quran rejected the Zaid version of it. So there was some, you know, some opposition to even that controlled transmission history. For the New Testament, the lack of centralization means that there is a downside. Many textual variants. There was no person in central control over the whole thing. But that means since there was no central control, there was no central point of altering the text. Do you get me? You follow what I'm saying? So it's actually in the wisdom of God a way of protecting the integrity of the text No single authority could alter it in a way that was undetectable. Somebody in Istanbul could try to alter it, but then all the other copies in Alexandria and Rome and Spain and everywhere else would say, hey, wait a minute, that's a change. That's not what we have. And so it could be detected. The texts and the manuscripts can be examined and see which ones are more faithful. And the original text can be obtained with near certainty even in the face of many variants, something that cannot be done with the Quran because that textual history was cut off at a certain point at the control point. Before that, you cannot know. Only after that, you can know. But we can go way back in the biblical text history and uh, have that confidence that what we see is what God, in fact, gave. Yes, there are some variations. We have to deal with that because of the way that God decided to transmit the text. But we're big boys and girls. We can handle that. We don't have to get uptight about it. And uh, when we come to those ones particularly that are important in the text, I usually note those in my sermons so you know that I've seen them and we're dealing fairly with them. Some of them are just very insignificant. Word swapped, a spelling change, a slight difference that's really of no significance. So we don't have to deal with all those details. 
All right, that was all I had for you this evening. I think that's enough. Fill our brains with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, not only our brains, but our hearts, because you have given us a very reasonable, rational faith, one that can be defended and one that we're called to defend with vigor because it is worthy of such a defense. And Lord, our, our, our thanks to you for giving this to us that we can prove from the text of Scripture the deity of Christ and our, our belief system in him. Help us to be faithful stewards of that. And if we run into folks who have concerns or questions about these things, that we'll be able to use the knowledge that we've gained here, the notes themselves, or other resources that we can put together to assist someone who has questions or doubts about what the Scripture says. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.